Hello, everybody. You are in for a special treat today because not only is Emily picking the quote of the week, but also Annalise is feeling a certain type of way today. It has nothing to do with her blood sugar and everything to do with her anger. And I've done enough venting to expel, feel my feelings and expel that energy, but there might be some lingering pettiness that comes up. So I'm sorry in advance, but also sorry, not sorry. (laughs) That's just how it is. Now, if that introduction hasn't scared you away, I'm Annalise. I'm Emily. And Emily, hit us with the quote of the week. Okay. The quote is, I feel bad if anyone feels horrible about themselves due to my weight loss, but that's not my job. I'm trying to sort my own life out. Do you have any guesses? Whose quote this is? Does that be Adele? I picked it. It is Adele. I owe her an apology because even though this doesn't expand to the degree that I wish it did on what we talked about last week, it's something. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. So Adele, I must have called a thousand times to tell you I'm sorry (laughs) for everything that I've done, but I am sorry. We love a self-aware queen. Sometimes you just haven't dug deep enough into the internet (laughs) to find the thing. And so after we talked about this last week, I said, I'm just going to dig a little deeper and see if maybe it's here somewhere because she is in general a fantastic person. So I figured that she had addressed this in some way at some point. And sure enough, she did. And this just this does tie perfectly into our episode. We mm-hmm. are doing the episode on attachment theory with Becky Kennedy, um, Dr. Becky Kennedy, who I think also has her own podcast called Good Inside, or she wrote a book called Good Inside, um, which is now on my list. In this episode, she talks about, as parents, how essential it is for us to show our kids And not be in alignment with them 100% of the time because that does a disservice to them because what that shows them is that your model of love and safety and security is someone that always agrees with you and doesn't come back and tell you when something is wrong or come back and take accountability for for behaving wrongly. Thank God for repair. Yes. And you know what? I, I love that you said that because I am balls to the wall, obsessed with attachment theory. Mm-hmm. I think it makes so much sense. I think it all, it just, it really resonates with me. Well, Amanda said, I think at one point, like, I've been waiting for the thing that will help me understand why, why am I, I like this? Yep. Why am I why like do this? I do the things I do? Mm-hmm. And this comes about as close as anything Yep, that she's found, that we've found. Mm-hmm. It just... Makes sense. However, I am really vibing off of Dr. Kennedy's talking about repair and the focus should be on repair. So many times, and it's understandable why, attachment theory is focusing on that, the the break, Mm -hmm. the parent leaving, or, you know, the way that the parent responds to crisis, but not in a focusing on the repair part of it, focusing on the response part of it. And the repair is the reason behind the why. Right. The repair is how we heal. The repair is, now you know your Enneagrams, what next? Mm -hmm. Now you know your love language, 
what next? Bringing and, it to consciousness. Exactly. And I love that. I'm obsessed with it. And I am hoping that you'll be okay, though, with me sort of to reference the Enneagram episode, hearkening back to that where I do just a tiny little overview yes. of attachment theory because they didn't really do that a whole lot in this episode. They did a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and because this is easily one of my TED Talk topics, I, I was hoping you would be okay with that. This topic is yours to run oh, with. Yay! And I will try to keep up. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, I can't claim to be an expert on attachment theory. I, I, I have not done any clinical research. I have not p- participated in any studies myself. I have perhaps done a fair amount of literature review, as they say, mm-hmm. in the scientific world. But that I certainly don't believe that makes me the authority on the subject. But you know what? I still have an opinion. And if you listen for this long, you give a shit about that opinion. So thank you for being here. And if you're here for the advice of medical professionals, this is not the place for you. Leave. (laughs) Blessings on your day. (laughs) We're glad you've stopped by. And you can stay if you you want. Sure. But this is where we part ways. Right. Yeah. Come back later mm-hmm. after you've gotten that medical advice if you're a curious person. Yes. Thank you. Next. Um, okay. So attachment theory is – and actually Dr. Kennedy was the one that really drew this line for me in response to Sigmund Freud's theory of everything is subconscious. Mm-hmm. And John Bowlby said, mm, everything is a result of our – programming at infancy, actual experiences that we have had. He had, I think initially, just two models of attachment, secure and insecure. Mary Ainsworth came along in the 70s and really redesigned it as we know it with her experiment called the strange it's, I've heard it called the strange experiment or the stranger experiment or the strange situation or the mm-hmm. stranger situation. Essentially what she did was she got a bunch of babies and their mothers because it was the 70s and let's be real, mothers were considered the primary caregiver back then, which is bullshit. But it, when we know better, we do better. And she wanted to see how babies reacted when a stranger walked in while the mother was there and this room was stimulating with full, full of toys and stuff. Um, how did the babies react when a stranger came in when the mother was there? How did the babies react when the mother left and the stranger was there? Mm-hmm. And then how did the babies react when the mother came back? That was the critical part. And that was the critical juncture. And out of that, she identified three attachment styles. Secure, anxious, and dismissive avoidant. Eventually, I don't remember the name of who put it together that then we we now have a fourth style that we call fearful avoidant which is really just a little column a a little column b cuz you know what just get real fucked up i'm allowed to say that because i close more most closely align with fearful avoidant because fearful avoidant kind of happens as a result of trauma i mean these all are because of trauma. But fearful avoidant, my understanding is that when there is some sort of consistent, (coughs) consistently inconsistent lack of safety 
around security, whether it's because of physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, whatever. My family who potentially listening, I love you all very much, has a generational history of abuse that our our family has been working on for a quarter of a century now that we are working on healing and moving through that we are aware of and that we are are being curious about so that's why i believe that i fall more under fearful avoidant i sit with the avoidant dismissives mm-hmm. which makes so much sense about why i love you so much it really does as we go into this episode you will understand why I say that. It tracks. Mm-hmm. For me too. And at some point, they did do some retitling of the styles, which is really confusing. And I was having a conversation the other night with someone about how like, y'all just need to pick a name and stick to it. Is that what this is? Because I saved two different yes. things. And I don't know which one I'm fearful, supposed to reference. Fearful avoidant is often called disorganized. Okay. Because it doesn't. It's not organized Mm -hmm. into one group or the other. Um, Anxious and then avoidant is – I've always heard it called dismissive avoidant. But – and it gets gets confusing because people try to combine anxious avoidant. That's not a thing. Mm -hmm. It's either anxious, avoidant, or disorganized slash fearful avoidant. I think sometimes people reference the anxious dismissive – bond that is almost archetypal Mm -hmm. because of how they feed off of each other. I think people call that the anxious avoidant attachment. Yeah. And maybe that gets misconstrued as the anxious avoidant attachment style. So that is confusing and that is something that we're acknowledging needs some clarification and some clarity around. So that's your brief rundown on attachment styles. It's based on, uh, Alexandra Solomon calls it your first love classroom which is kind of sappy, I admit, but it makes sense because it's descriptive. It is where you first learned what the model of love is. Mm -hmm. The styles that your parents, how responsive or non-responsive your parents were when you were in crisis. Now, this, and I love that they talked about this almost right out the gate. This is not a blame game. This is not, my mom was dismissive. So that's why I am the way that I am. This is an empathy tool. It is. A hundred percent. And it also doesn't excuse anything. Right. Because it says, I can understand your behavior, but not necessarily endorse it. Right. Both things can be true. Mm -hmm. Our parents did the absolute best that they could. They followed the model that was modeled for them and it did some damage. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, that's all that means. It doesn't, it's not an assignment of shame or blame or value on them or disvalue. That's not a word, but I'm going to make it devalue, whatever. Lack of, opposite of value. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. An unsettling, inconvenient truth, if you will. I might have to start an Al Gore spot on the bingo card because it's two <laughs> weeks in a row <laughs> that I've referenced him. Um, interesting. There is a song by Noah Kahn called um, Growing Sideways. <clears throat> Noah Kahn's coming to Purdue, by the way. Is he? I may or may not have two tickets for it. Well, if you're asking me, the answer is yes. It is. It will. (laughs) Yes, that is what I'm doing. Um, And if you're not asking me, then I bet you feel really stupid. Really? I hope hope you feel really stupid right now. 
<laughs> you broke my heart. Um, but he has a line in this song that says, I'm still mad at my parents for what their parents did to them. And that is one of my and on favorite and lyrics. And on and on. Yes. And uh, yeah, that it's not about holding a grudge against our parents. It's not about blaming them and saying, well, I can't be held responsible for the way that I am because my parents did this to me. Mm-hmm. No one – that's not what it's about. It's about empathy. It's the tool. It's not the, well, this is my love language and so, you know, fuck you if you don't speak it. It's the, oh, now that I know what my love language is, what do I do about it? Right. I'm so glad that they brought that up initially. Um, also, can I just, I just wrote down I loved that Glennon started with – a Taylor Swift song, the one of the newest Taylor Swift song. It's me. Oh, I'm yeah. the problem. Oh, yeah. It's me. Why am I the way that I am? Um, so that was fun. If you haven't quoted that lyric at <clears throat> least nine thousand times in the last couple months, what are you even doing? You're an AI. <laughs> so that's your brief rundown on attachment styles. Again, I saying that the this is important because when we are programmed from an early age. And that's really we know that computers are very we know that computers are very much like minds and that minds are very much computers. Elon the Musk mine is getting blurrier by the day. Very much. AI art freaks me the fuck out. What's that new chat GP chat? What? GP? I don't know. Is it a All chat right. with an AI? Well, no, people are using it to cheat in university classes oh, Jesus because Christ. it has the ability to compose essays that sound not like an AI composed the essay. Well, Bonnie's in here. Yeah, get it. Let We're not going to cut that because this is all about authenticity and how we respond to our kids in the kind of environment. <laughs> I don't love it that it's about my authenticity right now, well, but I'll, I'll live with it. I I'll don't, survive it. I don't think you handled that poorly. <laughs> I I I think it that what it says is that you've created a safe space for your children to come in and when and tell you when they have a problem. That's my spin on it. Okay, I'll take that. Back to the Borophil. Uh Elon Musk has has posited a theory about how we can upload our consciousness into a computer. Of course like, he that's has. That's a thing that that people are talking about. So we know that the minds work very similar to computers. And so when we are younger, when we are first born, Dr. Kennedy talks about we have 25% of our database, basically, programming completed when we are born. Give or take, I think, probably depending on how early or late you were born. And then by the time you reach age three, we have received 75% of our programming. Now, that's not to say that it can't be rewritten over time. Right. This isn't a stone tablet. Mm -hmm. This is a computer that we can send through patches and bug fixes and we can update code and we can be exploring and making things more efficient and more effective because our brains are like computers. Our brains are not stale stone tablets. Mm -hmm. So as a infant and young child, we are constantly assessing our environment for safety and, and deciding how we achieve safety because we can't do it ourselves. A little baby can't get its needs for food, water, shelter. It, it is it is physically incapable 
of attaining those itself. It is entirely dependent on the caregiver for a longer period of time than any other animal species or most other animal species. I don't know if it was any other, but. I would like to take a moment just to recognize the fact that while all of this wiring is coming together for these babies up to three years old, this also happens to be the time when mom is possibly struggling with postpartum depression. Yes. I would like to speak to a manager because... (laughs) Speaking of a bug in the code... Who lined that up? If you are able to acknowledge that and you still insist that there is some kind of divine creator out there, I have questions. I mean, I would say about that that at least we can repair. Yes. So... They did give us that. It's like they messed up my order and they gave me a coupon for a free Frosty. It's not the thing that I wanted. someone been to Wendy's recently? I love you, Wendy's. And I will take all of your free Frosty. <laughs> I, yes, all of that. Yeah. Thank it's you. not what I ordered, but I'll take it. It's better I'll than. I'll enjoy it. Uh, uh, what it, would my mom say? It's better than, um, gosh, I can't even remember what she used to say, but um, yeah. All right. Getting back on track. <laughs> There was this quote that I thought summarized the reason why this is relevant very well. When we feel unloved or unseen in our friendships, our romantic relationships, our families, even at work, we get a little crazy. And that is the goddamn truth. When we feel seen or unloved, we start to act unlike ourselves or to an extreme that we wouldn't normally behave. You know how I love to dabble in other episodes Uh when we're supposed to be talking about a specific episode? (laughs) I love you for it. The episode after this one, which also features Dr. Becky, is about internal family systems. We are going to do that episode next week. Good, because I have it written. Because it's great. And also, this reminds me of what they call, like, your exiled parts. And these are the parts of you that are just as much a part of you as your capital Mm. S self that is curious and compassionate and confident. Jane Fonda talks about, doesn't she talk about those parts? She might. Was it someone else? It was about the parts of yourself that you tried to keep hidden. Yes. Yeah. So that's the idea that the longer you tell those parts, be quiet, nobody wants to hear from you. Disembody you disembody yourself. Just like an actual child, the mm. more you tell them maybe, shh, 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 now's not the time. Now's not the time. The harder they're going to try to get your attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a behavioral principle too. Like, I mean, like that is straight up what I saw um I don't even I don't remember who it was it was one of the ABA greats that was like if you want to create an annoying child mm-hmm. ignore them yeah because all of you will do is get them to do the thing more intensely and more frequently and more loudly and more obviously mm-hmm. yeah. that and that because it doesn't extinction isn't oh, is it real <laughs> 
it is, but it's not the end all be all answer. Ignoring shit doesn't actually make it go away. I don't know if anyone has actually figured that out, but when we ignore things and pretend that they don't exist, I have yet to see an example of that mm-hmm. where the thing goes away. Yeah. Especially when it comes to feeling. You can't outrun your feelings. You can try, but you're just going to get fatigued and they're gonna, they're coming for you anyway. You're not special. <laughs> you are programmed the same as everybody else. Mm-hmm. Feelings are essential. Feelings aren't facts. Thank you, DBT. But they serve a purpose. They're communicating a need. They're data. And they're communicating they are data. They That's are not data. From That's from the next episode. But this is why we're going to talk about that one next week because it's a good one. It's a good one, you guys. I'll also say Dr. Kennedy's also probably not the first person to say that feelings are data either because it's that's a whole attachment theory founding point or whatever. Um, just like if you ignore the bill collectors who want money for the hospital for the surgery that you had seven years ago. Well, actually not seven years because after seven years they stop. But sometimes if you ignore it, I guess it does stop if you ignore it for long enough. <laughs> specific to credit. So that metaphor failed. However, you can't ignore a bill. The bill collector will come. We all pay at some point. Yeah. You can't do it real in real life. You can't do it with your feelings. So stop trying. <laughs> Stop ignoring the problem. Yeah. You can take a break from the problem. Well, you can look at the problem from your capital S self. Mm. You don't have to look at your problem from a dysregulated vantage point. Mm. You can get into your most embodied self and that's the right time to look at the problem. And when you have anger flare up, when you have sadness flare up, that's what's telling you maybe you've been trying to ignore me, but Mm. it's time to confront this. Yeah. So when we know better, we do better. And now that we know why we respond the way that we respond, what do we do with that? And she talks about love is as integral to our survival as food, water, shelter. We know that. And these studies were the things that really proved that. She talked about primal panic. And I swear to God, if that's not the name of my next band. (laughs) Your next band? What was the name of your last one? That's a minor detail. And I really don't appreciate you bringing it up in front of everybody. really want to know. No, I've never been in a band before. Actually, that's not true. My cousins and I and my brother and sister and I would um, perform as we called ourselves the Soda Girls. My brother wasn't in the band. He was the manager. I love it. We were Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, Coca-Cola. I don't remember what the other You mean you were. almost weren't going to tell our listeners about the Soda Girls? I know. I really thought that was I'd, a close call. I would save that for the next Friendship Friday, but happy early gifting. <laughs> Primal panic being this when we sense that one of our needs is not being met, whether it's the need for food, the need for water, the need for shelter, safety, security, love. We panic because it is inherently linked to our survival. Of course, we're going to mm-hmm. act a certain type of way. This is valid. This is valid. And we're all programmed to do this. 
you can either be acknowledge that and continue in that same cycle, or you can work on when you're aware of it, bringing it to consciousness and reprogramming yourself. Yeah, they do a really good job of pointing out that your attachment style for whatever problems it may be causing you in your present, it's what kept you Mm -hmm. safe in your childhood. Yeah. And she talks about, um, you know, the word defensive has this negative connotation to it, but defenses are good. Mm -hmm. They keep you alive. Yeah. They, you were doing the best that you could. Your defenses kept you surviving. It may be maladaptive now, right? but it was adaptive at the time. Yes. Yes. And then she talks about why do I choose the partners that I do? And it is our body and brain's way of playing out these old systems that were either modeled for us in our parents' relationships with each other or in our parents' relationship to us, caregivers, whether they were parents, grandparents, whatnot. I know how to be the corresponding piece to this person. Oh, get out of my... (laughs) Yes. This feels like home. She said, attraction in adulthood is an activation of our earliest... (laughs) She's got it written down too in her notes. Attraction in adulthood is an activation of our earliest attachment patterns. Okay, and this is great if we had a secure attachment. Mm -hmm. But not... That's not the, that's not a, that's not the thing for most of us, at least probably most of us listening to these types of episodes. Right. Because we're, we're not missing anything. Yeah. They said, this is not the podcast for you. You can do easy things. (laughs) (laughs) I missed that. (laughs) Um, and then the next thing I had written down is all it is, is our bodies recognizing a pattern and saying, I know how to be this missing piece. Mm -hmm. I wrote, I know how to participate in this. Be this person's missing puzzle piece. Fill this need. This feels like home. I know what role to play. Mm -hmm. I know how to do this. And that's why, that's the only reason why I feel about you the way that I feel. And if that just doesn't take the fucking sparkle out of romance... It's there's not a lot of magical thinking in there. Nope. There's not. And I had a moment in therapy when I really connected the relationship that my parents had, which had have with each other and the type of relationship that I seek out for myself. And if that- you were wondering which part of the podcast I told you reminded me of you, bingo. Uh, <laughs> she was, okay, well, I didn't pick up on that because I was, uh, for whatever reason, um, but I had like a whole moment. I think I called you after the therapy at, um session I had where I was like, oh my God, none of it matters. It doesn't matter. Attraction is not real. Love's not real. It's literally just this. It's a trauma bond. Mm -hmm. It's relationships and attraction are just a trauma bond. That's it. That's the joke. Yeah. I. (laughs) Do you also want to speak to the manager? Yes. I want to. The line starts here. (laughs) I might skip speaking to the manager and just set everything on fire. <laughs> when we love someone and we feel that connection to them and the not necessarily bad feelings that come about that because this feels like home. Mm-hmm. Fuck me. What that tells me is I don't want this for my child. Yeah. So how do I undo a lot of that programming that I did 
inadvertently, unwittingly, in the first three years of his life and move my child to give my child the data so that they can move themselves to a place of secure attachment. A beautiful thing that Dr. Becky said was she so often gets pleas from parents Mm. who say, help me. I don't want my child to be anxious the way that I'm anxious. I don't want my child to be angry the way I am always angry. I don't want these things for my kid. And instead of saying, okay, we're going to figure out how to keep this from getting to your child, what she will tell them is, okay, then let's work on those things for you. I have it started. And it'll trickle down to your kid. Wouldn't it be nice if you were just less anxious for you? Yeah. You deserve that for you. And how many fucking times have we talked about, Mm -hmm. all right, if you can't do it for you, model it for your child and how fucked up that is. And I love it that this woman is saying, nah, I mean, yeah, model it for your child, but do it for you. Yeah. Do it for you. Thank you, Dr. Becky. Thank you. Yeah. Loved that. Um, so th- then she she talks about this thing where how many times has an eight-year-old performed to get attention? Millions at that point. That is a practiced circuit. That's an eight-year-old. I know how old you are. You know how old I am. It's a few years added on to eight. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> at this point, that programming is so practiced It is instinctual and subconscious. And so maybe we should just be giving ourselves a little generosity Mm -hmm. and grace when we don't fix it the first million times we try. Yeah, I think like so many of the things that we talk about, the first step, and maybe it's the step that you stay on for a while, is just bringing it to consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the answer to learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. You know, just acknowledging and recognizing that the game is rigged. You can choose whether or not you participate in it. Mm -hmm. This is when she compares secure attachment to generational wealth. And I about fell out of my seat. The rich get richer. Mm -hmm. The The people with secure attachment have these more satisfying, healthier, safer relationships because that was modeled for them. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And let me be clear, that's the fucking dream. I don't know if I believe that there are multiple generations of secure attachment. I also don't think that that exists. But I I I mean, I would need to see some evidence that that's even a thing. (laughs) I'm going to need data. Yeah. And so far... The absence is, is there. She And then, then they take it into this whole other realm that I've never really heard attachment theory go into, and that is sex. Mm-hmm. And talking about no sex is going to feel as rewarding as sex that was euphoric because it finally made you feel like you achieved. Whatever your dynamic was with your parents, she said – um, Sex cannot be separated from any other aspect of connecting and relating to other people. And like it or not, the way we felt about our parents or the way our parents related to us is going to affect the way that we have sex. Mm-hmm. Now, Ew. listen, right? <laughs> I ain't thinking about them. And that's that's the thing, right? Like we're not consciously thinking right. about it. Our right. brains, though, are. And that's when she talks about her and Amanda not having a lot of um, memories of her childhood. And Nicola mm-hmm. Perra talks about that, too. 
you might not have distinct memories of that, but, but your, your reward chemicals do. Yeah, and your brain still your the body keeps the score. Mm-hmm. The brain remembers. You know, you don't have to be consciously thinking about something for it to influence the way that you feel and act and behave. So here's a question that I have. We know that it is a generalization, but it appears often that most women and girls and I guess any person who is attracted to male identifying folks, there's a bad boy stage. Oh. So if we've all got different attachments, and I think we do, but I want to understand why this is almost like a rite of passage Mm. that almost every girl, woman, person goes through. I was talking to somebody about this the other day, actually. And I think it's because bad boys are easily identifiable. Say more. We know that they're going to treat us like shit. It's predictable. Maybe. And if we can predict it, and I'm, we're like, yeah, I know he's a bad boy. I know he's going to break my heart. I know that he's going to treat me like shit. I, I, I'm not going to be caught off guard by that. I'm attracted to that because it's something I can control in a way that I can predict. It could be. At least they're being honest. Mm-hmm. At least they're transparent. Are they? <laughs> no, but that's what we tell ourselves. They're being consistent. Right. Because, and and isn't that, that's part of the whole thing. The bad boy image is mm-hmm. like, I am what I am. I'm a yeah. bad boy. I do this thing or that thing or whatever, and I'm going to break your heart. Mm-hmm. Well, at least you were upfront about it. Yeah. At least you didn't pretend to be my friend just so you could sleep with me. Or at least you don't claim to be a nice guy, but then really feel you're entitled to my body. Yeah, in my just, time, I in really my emotional find that work. Interesting that shared experience. Even though we've got all these different attachment styles, we seem to land in that place at some point. Well, almost all of us. And now another thought that I'm having about that is because what do we know about attachment styles? They're attracted to their opposite, and that is a cycle. So our parents were probably both opposite attachment styles. Mm -hmm. So we've all had a loving bad boy modeled for us, whether it was our dad or our mom. And there are bad boys with a different, with different attachment styles. Yeah. There are different ways to be a bad boy. (laughs) I can't keep saying bad boy. It feels weird. (laughs) There are so many ways to be a bad little boy. (laughs) Bad boys are not a monolith. No, they're not. but I think it makes sense because we all have some sort of relation to being treated poorly or mm-hmm. the bad boy or the rebel or whatever it is that we're satis- getting satisfied yeah. by this phase that we're in. We've all, It's not unique to anyone because we've all experienced it. We are all trying way. to prove something about mm-hmm. ourselves and person. I'm, I refuse to say bad boy again. <laughs> you just did. <laughs> but that is an opportunity for us to act that out and prove something about ourselves. Yeah. I saw this, um, one of these, she, I think she, I'm sure she's a therapist. If not, she, I guess she's a life coach, whatever, but she does a lot of stuff on attachment. And she talked about for people who, um, do have this particular attachment style where it's like equating winning with love. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have to compete for it, then it doesn't feel like love. And so it becomes a thing that you are 
constantly trying to prove that you deserve because you, you that's what you do. Winning love. She has this quote where she talks about like, like winning becomes winning love becomes I only it is only love if I've had to struggle for it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you used to tell me was like, it shouldn't be this hard all the time. And for me, it was like, but it's not challenging enough. Mm-hmm. It's It's got to be, I've got to win. And I, I had a conversation with, with my ex-boyfriend after we had broken up, like, why am I just so, I said this to him, why am I just so obsessed with winning? Why do I have to win? Why do I feel like that's so essential to me? Well, at one point, winning was literal survival. Yeah. That was safety. mm -hmm. And so, of course, what I associate with love Mm -hmm. is me performing or winning or – and this is not shade on my parents or being like, my parents never loved me unless I was perfect because that's not true because they would have literally never loved me. (laughs) (laughs) We – embrace weirdness and and goofy and all that and love in our in our home. I I always felt loved in my home and I knew that I could get more attention, which our young little minds equate with love. Mm-hmm. If I did something really remarkable because my sweet mother had three children all within I think that what we were all we're all within 2 years of each other. Mm-hmm. So I was two when my brother was born. My sister was four, five at the most when my brother was born. The woman was so tired. While you are wiring. She's just trying to keep her head above she the She's also trying to survive mm-hmm. in the late 80s, early 90s. It's a miracle any of us survived the 80s and 90s. And she was a professional. I mean, she has her master's in education. Mm-hmm. And so she she did she had to take step aside from the whole career woman track. And so yeah, I could kind of get why it was like you literally you have a finite amount of energy. You can't be this super patient, super attentive, all three of you, because and that's also not real life. How many kids did Abby say were in her family? I don't know. Do you remember? I, I, she said something like that. There yeah. were a ton of kids in the family. Mm-hmm. So you had to really shine mm-hmm. in some way to get your share of the attention or that's how it felt. And are there parents out there that kind of knowingly do that? I, I, Yes. Mine was not one of them. I think the vast majority of parents, that's the unintended side effect of that. A little bit of trauma for a treat mm-hmm. is okay. <laughs> a little bit of competition, a little bit of realizing I cannot always be, well, realizing for all the rest of you, for me, this is not true. I cannot always be the center of attention. <laughs> it cannot always be the Annalise show. This is what, I mean, that's not true for me, but the rest of you guys have had to learn that. When I thought about how all of this attachment styles stuff kind of worked itself out for me as a kid. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was an only child. Yeah, that's going to really flip this whole narrative. And I would like to know if there's some commonality between being an only child and having a particular attachment style. Because my experience of being an only child Mm -hmm. was kind of how you've talked before about Always having one foot in two different worlds Mm. and never being fully in Mm -hmm. either of them. Mm -hmm. I was around adults a lot. And 
I was around kids. But never fully. My experience at home was me and two adults. And my parents were not in their 20s when I was born. They were in their 30s. So they were adulty adults mm-hmm. when I came of age. So I never fully figured out how to be around either group. I didn't really know how to be when I was around the adults, and I didn't really know how to be when I was around the kids. Neither one of them felt like they fit totally for me. That must be really hard. I mean, it definitely contributed to me having to figure out what I think comes naturally for other people, like just the the authenticity Mm -hmm. piece that I still haven't totally figured out. I am really sorry that that was the model that you had set for you. Not sorry, like sorry for you. Like just want to acknowledge that like that's probably not talked about enough. I mean, I have some curiosity about it. And my mom and dad are the most wonderful people I know. Oh, you talk about one of the, the one of your mom's um, ways of demonstrating love being putting the towels in the um, dryer while you were in the bath or in the shower. She would oh, put my, my clothes God. in the dryer before I would have to get out of bed in the morning. What an just angel. So that they would be warm for me. So it's not that your parents weren't loving. No, but they were adults. Right. They were not just the same way that I'm not interested in rolling around on the floor and playing with my kids. I do it sometimes, and they did it sometimes, but not in the same way that people who had siblings around right. had that. Yet another reason why I'm so grateful for my ex-husband and his fiance because they really took one for the team by having a baby sister for Jack <laughs> so that Jack gets that experience because that's not in the cards for me, (laughs) I don't think. And now having my own kids, I have to learn for the first time, like, what does it look like to be a kid? Mm. Because I was kind of, I didn't act like (laughs) y'all. Right. You were, you were the little grown up, and that, um, that is not how kids actually are. And not always. I mean, there were times where I was silly and wound up. Because you were a child. Yes. Yeah. But I, I don't want to make it sound like I never had that experience. You weren't like Wednesday Adams where no, you were like the I world's most responsible. And I couldn't dance like her either. Ugh, who can really? Goals. Like inspired, inspired fire. Um, And I wouldn't, I think we can, I want to circle back to how you talk about you were being, you're, you're identify more with dismissive. Mm-hmm. or avoidant and I identify more with fearful and there is the there is this there's the archetype of the anxious and the dismissive and initially I really thought that I was anxious until I started seeing like no but I do this thing and that's dismissive and I think that's why this whole thing came out and it's not an absolute it mm-hmm. it's not a label that you slap on yourself and and it is it is done And I think they said that you can act this out in different ways with different people. Yes, you can have different attachment styles Mm -hmm. based on different relationships. I would say my attachment to you is incredibly secure. Agreed. That does not mean that my attachment to this person over here or this friend or this coworker Mm -hmm. or whatever is. It just means that I have figured out how to become safe and secure within this relationship Mm -hmm. dynamic. But it is interesting to me that 
the person that I have that mutual stardust with is more closely aligned with personally, they believe they're more closely aligned with that attachment style in that I kind of just want to be like, okay, this was the one relationship where it worked, Mm -hmm. where I did achieve whatever it was I needed to. I did repair the wound, complete the cycle. Yeah. But you made it a lot easier than any of the other dismissives well, I've ever been with. Yeah, neither of us, I don't think, acted out our default attachment styles in the way that we typically would. Like right. they talk about how Glennon and Abby, in conflict with Abby, Glennon will just go cold. It's like she leaves her body. Mm. She oh, has yeah, we're just coming back to that, by the way. A robot. And I'm known to do that in certain spaces. But I don't do that with you. I think this goes back to both of our personal and and professional histories, and mm-hmm. that we are we are into mental health. You are months away from LMHC. You are a school counselor. You are a mental health provider. I am a behavior therapist. I'm not a licensed mental health clinician or anything like that. But I have a very deep interest in therapy mm-hmm. and and all the different versions of therapy, whether it's CBT or DBT or EMDR or attachment theory or any of the other, uh, a billion other, thanks ADHD, a billion <laughs> other of the philosophies mm-hmm. or families in, in therapy. The fact that we are naturally curious and interested in that and want to apply that to our lives, I think was that was the thing that that helped us be able to securely attach to each other because we were like already aware of these things and how, and we were adults at the point that we met. And that's Mm -hmm. not to say that, you know, you can't have these kind of secure, fulfilled relationships with people that you've known since you were a child. But I think it helps that we were adults and we were already in a place of healing. And actually that then I, what I wrote here was if we're attached if we're attracted to this while awake and healing, why is it different? If we're attracted to this while awake and healing, is it different? It's filling something we need in a way we didn't know we needed. And then I just put, why? Why? Because mm-hmm. I always need to know why. Why am I attracted to this person? Why do I feel like this person's the one? Why do I feel like this person's destined for me? Whatever. Whoever it is. How can I trust that? OMG. I just remembered that I wanted to bring this up. If you have not yet watched the Pamela Anderson documentary that just dropped on Netflix. Oh, I have not. Holy attachment style. She grew up with this dad who was wild and reckless. And Tommy Lee. Yes. I mean, it's, I cannot think of a clearer example. And she says it, she acknowledges it. I mean, it's not a revelation to her. Mm -hmm. This is why she has the attractions that she has. And it's so interesting because even though she has brought it to consciousness, when she talks about the night they met, Mm. she talks about how Tommy put ecstasy in her drink and she didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't on the doc. This was on the armchair expert pod. And when she says that Monica is horrified Mm. and, and she starts to tell Pamela, like, that's not okay. But Pamela will still say, no, it was the 90s. It was romantic. 
It's it's wild. You've got to listen to it for yourself or watch the documentary. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes bringing it to consciousness is not enough. Is not enough. <laughs> but I do I do think the fact that we were already working on healing mm-hmm. when we met was what helped it be move from a repeating toxic cycles that are familiar and the the evil that you know mm-hmm. into a repair. Yes. This was repair. And then talking about the emphasis needing to be on repair. How do you respond to the person that you are caring for when they are in need, when they are dysregulated, when they are unsafe, especially the child, if you're a parent, but it's the same for friendships too. And obviously we still have boundaries. It is not my responsibility to help you not feel your feelings. It's, I don't, I, I'm not, it's not my job to come in and turn the light on for you. Mm -hmm. It is my job to come in and sit in the dark with you so that you're not alone Mm -hmm. and to provide some comfort. And the parents that were able to do that were the children were the parents of the children who had secure attachments. Yeah. And because it is repair, we can still do this now. Mm Mm-hmm. We can do it in our relationships. We can do it in our friendships. We can do it with our children. We can do it with our adult children. Yeah, I'm probably going to have to do some repair over the fact that when Rally barged in here earlier, I shot fire out of my eyeballs. <laughs> but I, I'm prepared to do that. I'm in a better place now, and I'm in a clearer headspace, and I'm prepared to do that. Because what does that do for him, Emily? What does that tell him about love? The people that love us will fuck up. Mm-hmm. The people that love us will do things and say things that hurt us. Love comes back and takes accountability and shows the repair process. If you really, you were doing it, him a service there. You know, I was called upon. I'm just a humble <laughs> civil servant, just trying to do my part. If you've ever heard the quote, love means never having to say you're sorry. We're kicking that all the way out the door how, today. How did you make it this far into this podcast? <laughs> Love means constantly yes. having to say you're sorry. <clears throat> so if we focus on the repair, and this too is very like um, adverse childhood experience, like aces for me too. It's mm-hmm. not about, oh my God, I have, I'm a fucking 10, ace 10. I'm fucked. Mm-hmm. It's, we know that- when we see the problem and it and we're conscious of it and we we can do something about mm-hmm. it we can repair and that's I, for whatever reason i feel like a lot of the attachment stuff that i have heard or read or been into they do a great and fantastic job of explaining how we got to where we are mm-hmm. but they don't talk about that repair piece and they don't really talk about how the repair piece in the beginning was what was how we got to be the way that we are one of them says it was never about the parents leaving they were always going to mm-hmm. leave it was about what happened when they came back yeah it's about how the kid responds when they come back and it's about how the parent responds when they come back and well doesn't that just give you a little bit more hope because mm-hmm. i fucking need it yeah 
not because of my own parents or I anything like that. that. But and she talks about too, like sometimes you'll this the parent, your parents may not do choose to do the same work that you do, mm-hmm. and that's okay. You're not in, and that's something that we talk about in therapy. That if you're having a conversation, if you if you feel like you need to have a clarifying conversation with someone from your childhood, whether it's your parent, your sibling, your grandparent, whoever, you're having that conversation for you so that you can say your piece. You're not having that conversation to influence the other person or or force them to respond in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And that's what this work is about is is I'm not doing attachment work to force my parents or show them the light or show my friends or my partner, whoever, look at how much healthier I am because I did this stuff. You should do it too. Well, and how do I know if it's safe for you to let go of that stuff? Yeah. Very maybe valid. It's not still sa- maybe it still isn't safe for you to let. Maybe you still do need some of that Maybe stuff. it's still a defense that is very much needed. And how reckless would it be for mm. me to tell you to let go of it when yes. I don't know yes. if that's responsible or ethical? Right. And she talks about which response provides the best reaction. What separates the anxious from the avoidant, from the fearful or disorganized? We're disorganized because there was no pattern or predictability to mm-hmm. which response was going to get us the the reaction. Do I shove my feelings down into a tiny little box and appear completely unbothered because by doing that, I'm going to make myself more manageable for my caregiver? Mm-hmm. Or do I be the loudest voice in the room, most dramatic, most out of control, inconsolable because that's the only way I can get my parent to respond. If I had to take a guess right now about how my two little cupcakes were going to turn out, (laughs) Hmm. I feel like it's, that's the one. It's It's the the disorganized one. Oh, it's disorganized. It's the disorganized one. It's not because our parents are monsters. Mm -hmm. It's not because you're a monster. It's just life is unpredictable. Yeah. And when that pattern is unpredictable, the the data is you're unable to there's no average. Yeah. There's no way to average that. There's no predictability in that it's just completely unpredictable. Of course that's going to be just a little bit dysfunctional. And they're still baking. Mm-hmm. My cupcakes are still baking. Your cupcakes are still baking still and you can repair. Time. Now that we know this, do want to go back to the sex thing because it was very something that challenged me a lot. <clears throat> and I know what the one of the relationships that's been really difficult for me to let go of part of that. And I'm about to be real transparent here. And I acknowledge that some most of all of the people that I would say almost all the people that listen to us know us. Mm-hmm. And so people who are listening to this may not want to know about my sex life. And that's that's fair. The relationship that was the hardest for me to let go of part of that was because the sex was like soul connecting for me. I don't know if it was for them, but it was for me. And I was a fearful with an avoidant. Mm -hmm. And it was the one time when it felt like their guard was down. I was a priority. They excelled at that. And I was enough. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just about filling my need, whether they got their need met or not. It was about we were on the same playing field. Mm -hmm. We were even, we were partners, we were equals. And not only 
Did they care about my satisfaction? But I was able to provide them satisfaction. And that- It was like the top of the mountain. Yeah. That's the soul connecting kind of stuff. When you, mm-hmm. when I felt like we were on the same page, doing the same thing for each other, reciprocating, seen and heard and felt and loved, that was formational for me. Because my relationship with sex previous to that was one- more casual and more like, Hey, it's a good thing and I can enjoy it. And, and sometimes you've got someone that makes, treats you like a princess. And sometimes you're able to, you're the, you know, the person that gets the job done. And that's, that's good. There's value in both of that, but I never had really experienced it within the same relationship as consistently Mm -hmm. as I did in that dynamic. And that was really hard of the drug that you really, really need. Yeah. It feels great. Yeah. That doesn't mean that it's not still a drug. Yes. I think that just like some of these really interconnected, like super emotional, like deeply loving sexual relationships are just another reenactment of our core wounding, so can emotionless sex. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's attractive to so many of us because we get that familiarity and we know we know how this puzzle piece fits. We know mm-hmm. how to do this. And we still get these emotional needs met without us acknowledging that they're emotional. Right. Because we've spent our whole lives avoiding, shoving down, numbing, or disembodying from the sensation of that emotion. It feels safe or healthy because it's familiar, mm-hmm. not because it's actually safe or healthy. Right. <clears throat> so uh, if that isn't just a super hopeful and, and healthy view <laughs> on sex... I don't know what is. Do you have any final thoughts? Uh, One while you're looking for yours, I do want to talk. I want to want to mention how she mentioned that they didn't measure this in the strange experiment or the strange situation with Mary Ainsworth. They they replicated that study later on when they had the technology to do so. But the avoidant or dismissive babies, the ones who didn't react at all, they looked like they were fine. They didn't cry. They weren't. They were unbothered, Mm -hmm. had the same significantly elevated cortisol levels as the anxious ones. Right. Just because they looked calm and unbothered. Yeah, it was like the duck on the water. Yes. And you can't see how furiously they're pedaling their little feet underneath. And you are, you can be, as a baby, obviously, you're not conscious really of any of that. I don't know when your internal voice starts, but it's probably not before 18 months, Mm -hmm. which is when these babies were being studied. You are not going to be aware of the fact that you are upset. Mm -hmm. You are experiencing the same level of upset, just even though you're not showing it on the surface, even though you're not showing it on the outside, even though you're denying it, you are just as upset as the other person. We know that it has the same effect on these babies because the same chemical is is released at the same rate. So just because it doesn't look like your person is upset, not making the assumption that they are, Mm -hmm. but not making the assumption that they aren't. And also having a little bit of generosity around, they may not even be aware. Yes. I thought that was fascinating. It was really helpful for me when she talked about the way we are willing to be vulnerable with our secure base. Mm, Yes. I'm glad you said that. Because there are days where I will hear from my children's teachers 
about the way they behave at school. And I compare my notes to the way they sometimes behave at home. And I'm like, why? Why are they this way for their teachers? And I get this version of them. I am their, I would like to think I'm their secure base. Yes. We've talked about that before, mm-hmm. right? Like when we get our kids back from grandma and grandpa's and they're like, oh, they're a total angel. And then they're a total asshole mm-hmm. for us. Reframing that instead of taking it as an insult or just being like, what the fuck am I doing wrong? Why does my, mm-hmm. why am I, why does my kid think it's okay to treat me like that? Right. Because they're not doing it intentionally. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they will be eventually. Um, and that was one thing that she talked about is why this is why like teenagers or kids being so rude because their bodies are reacting in a way like I'm just doing what I was trained to do. And now you're telling me I can't do that. Yeah. That's confusing. Of yeah. course they're going to be you rude. Can't because move the goalpost in the middle of the game. Right. They're doing that because we have created a safe space for them to be that mm-hmm. way. And that's a burden and I think an honor. And With that, great power comes great responsibility. That's right, Peter Parker. <laughs> and I say that almost as much to just convince myself because beliefs are practiced thoughts mm-hmm. to remind myself that, yes, it is hard, but it is also something that not everybody gets the chance to do. And it's okay. It's it's an honor. Mm-hmm. It's it's something that we get the privilege of doing and experiencing. Um, I guess next week I will probably be continuing my celebrity apology tour. <laughs> I will probably owe Pamela Anderson an apology by then. Adele, I hope we're cool. <laughs> Beat me, call me if you need to reach me. <laughs> or you can email us at podcast podthingspodcast at gmail.com or you could follow us on Instagram at we can do pod things with underscores between each word. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're glad that you're here. We hope you made it all the way through. If you are our very dedicated listener in Belgium, please. Oh yeah, we are in multiple com- countries. We have a dedicated listener in Belgium? We do. They have listened to every single episode of this. I love you, whoever you are. Please email us. Please, please, please email us. We, I, I might make some swag to send to you because I don't even think my own mother has listened to every single episode of this. And that's okay. She probably shouldn't. But she can if she wants to because she's a grown-ass woman. We are um, in five countries and only two of those are America and Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, whether you're listening in Belgium in Los Angeles, in Lafayette, or Australia. That's another one that we've got a couple listeners in. We are so grateful that you're here. We hope that you choose to come back next week. And we hope that our verbal, emotional, external processing has only encouraged you to do the same thing. That's what this is. Well, this is about us having the excuse to spend time together and and talking about these things. And also making it okay for other people to talk about. Yes. You don't have to be an expert to talk about your feelings. You don't have to be an expert on therapy. You don't have to be an expert on attachment theory or anything else. Don't wait to be an expert before you start talking about this stuff. Because that's not how you become an expert. No. Is by waiting. You become an expert by experimenting. And being curious. So do that. We, We support you doing that. Regardless of your background or where you come from or what your ideas are. We hope that by us being vulnerable and and curious that we are creating an environment where you can be vulnerable and curious too. And if we're getting it wrong, let us know we're getting it wrong. Please do because we can do hard things and that includes taking criticism. 
Thank you so much. Uh, bonsoir. 